Well, uh, it's good to see everybody here. It's getting a little frosty out there, but we're going to make it through. Has anybody here this morning ever been discouraged? The rest of you are liars. You face times in your life, an, an obstacle that's seemingly unavoidable, that you, a sense of, of failure or frustration, of extreme fatigue. Times in your life when, when you felt like there was no hope. And it was easy to succumb to fear. I think we've, we've all, we've all times. In fact, Warren Wearsby, he said it this way. He said that discouragement is no respecter of persons. It's no respecter of persons. In other words, it doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are, what kind of life you've led. Everybody is going to face times in their lives of extreme discouragement. In fact, there's a man who once, he said this, he said, I am the subject of depressions of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go to. Now, who do you suppose, what kind of a man would say something like that? We might picture it to be some guy in a straight jacket and padded walls, or maybe some villain, some terrible person. You know who said this? You know who said this statement? His name was Charles Spurgeon. If you're not familiar with Charles Spurgeon, he's basically like a Christian Superman. Okay? He's, he's like, he is one of the greatest preachers in evangelical history. And, and Charles Spurgeon said, I hope that none of you have to face the depths of depression and wretchedness that I've experienced. You, you, you go through the pages of Scripture. You go to the Psalms. David, God's own heart, talks about the depths of depression and discouragement that he faced. You look at the prophets, the men who God has called to do his job, and the things that they faced. Jesus said in the garden, even God himself said at the time of Noah, I'm sorry that I ever made man. There's no one exempt from this discouragement. Paul. This morning we're going we're gonna to look, we're going to start looking at the book of 2 Corinthians, a new study that we're going to begin this morning. And, and we look at Paul and the things that he says in this book, it's incredible, the, the, face, the discouragement that he himself has faced as well. He said, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Talking about him and his co-workers. He says, we felt the sentence of death. Paul thought that he was going to die, and eventually he does for, for the life that he lives. And then he goes on to say, been in prison more frequently. Now, I want you to stop for a second. What it would be like to go through the things that Paul is going to talk about going through right here. I mean, just imagine going to prison, not just once, how traumatic that would be, but to go to prison frequently. Imagine all the discouragement that would come just from that. That's just the tip of the iceberg for Paul. He says, I've been flogged more severely and been exposed to death again and again. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. They said 40 lashes would kill somebody. So they said, give them everything that'll kill them and then just back it off just a little bit. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. He was floating in the ocean for over 24 hours. He says, I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. It sounds like a twisted Dr. Seuss rhyme, doesn't it? It was in, in danger in a box and in danger with a fox. 
I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. This is the life of the great Apostle Paul. And then he goes, beyond all of that, verse 28 in chapter 11, he says, besides everything else, besides all of that physical hardship that I endured, I faced the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. He says, beyond, far deeper of a wound than sticks and stones is the pain that can come from ministering with people. This is the discouragement that, that Paul faces. And this, that he writes this letter to the Second Corinthians, we're going to call this study, it's the autobiography of a bleeding heart. The autobiography of a bleeding heart. It's the story of the life and ministry of Paul, specifically dealing with this church. And this, this is a letter, into this letter, this is an intensely personal, emotional letter. This is Paul laid out on the table and open before us. This is like a cross-section of Paul's body where we look inside and we see things, emotions, and thoughts of Paul that you don't see in any of the other epistles. It's not neat and tidy like the book of Romans, which is just laid out in this super organized fashion of the Christian life, or Ephesians, where he says, in these three chapters, this is who you are, and in these last three chapters, this is what you're called to do. It's messy. It's all over the place. It may not be Paul's most polished work, but it may be his most interesting, his intimate relations with the church. I think that if Paul was on Facebook, and he had a relationship with the Corinthian church, that it would probably read, it's complicated. It's complicated. There's highs and lows. I mean, this thing is like a, a teenage drama unfolding with all the love and the hate there in between. In fact, Erasmus, he was a, a theologian from the 50, around the 1500s. He had this to say about this everywhere. It's this way, it's that way. He actually compared it, he compared it to a river. What he said was, he said, it's a river that, and it's kind of hard to read, a river which sometimes flows like a gentle stream. And sometimes rushes down as a torrent, bearing all before it. And sometimes it's spreading out like a peaceful lake. And sometimes it's losing itself as if it were in the sand. And sometimes breaking out in its fullness in some unexpected place. He says, hold on to your it's going to be a wild ride. And he goes on to say, he says, though perhaps the least methodical of all Paul's writings, it is among the most interesting of his letters as bringing out the man before the reader and revealing his intimate relations to the people for whom he labored. It's a beautiful, messy piece of literature. Three things that we're going to look at this morning, and we're going to kind of, just as an introduction to the letter, just look at the first few verses. We want to see the author wrote it. Why did he write it? What is his intended meaning in writing this letter? We first of all see pretty clearly that it's Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Not a lot to unpack there. When you think about your identity, if I was to say, who would introduce yourself to somebody? Who, how, what would be the first few things that you would choose? What, what, in other words, what are the first things that pop into your head when you think of your identity? What kind of things? What are the first two or three things that come in? Oftentimes, it's maybe our job, maybe how old we are. Maybe some of us have tucked that deep in the recesses of our memory. Where we live, the relationship. What are the things that we choose to identify ourselves with? 
And oftentimes, for us, I think it's vocation. I'm Justin the dentist, or I'm Justin, in my case, the unemployed. Um, you know, what, what do you think of yourself? Paul, you know, Paul had a job. He was a tent maker. That's how he made his living. He made tents. He was a leather worker. But Paul doesn't come out of the gate saying, I'm Paul the leather maker. I'm Paul the tent maker. No, what does he say? He says, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. An apostle means one sent forth with orders. See, yes, he's a tent maker, but he makes tents to, to be able to, to put enough money to have food on the table most of the time, although we've heard he, he's hungry a lot of the time. But he does that so that he can be who God called him to be and do what God has called him to do. Why would Paul introduce himself like this? Why would he start by, by speaking to his apostleship? I think it's very strategic he starts this way. And I think there's two main reasons. Number one, it's to silence the haters. To silence the haters. You see, whenever someone wanted to attack his ministry, attack the churches that he was planting, oftentimes they would invariably attack his credentials. And they would say, oh, this is just a random dude. He's not even one of the 12 original apostles. He didn't even walk with Jesus. He's just come lately who has his own message doing his own thing out of left field. And this happened all the time. If you recall our study through Galatians, he was facing the exact same thing. And so Paul always begins by establishing his credentials. And I love what they are. I'm an apostle called by the will of God. And notice, if, if you remember, do you remember Paul's conversion story? Do you remember what happened in Acts? He's, he's on the road to Damascus, and this bright light knocks him down in the, in the middle of the road. And, 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 and this, is, this is at this time, he's not even Paul. He is Saul, right? He is the biggest persecutor of this small, upstart Christian church. And so Paul gets knocked down, and God speaks to him from this light, and he says, Stop hurting my children. I want you to minister to them. I want you to love them and lay your life down for them. And so God, here he comes in and totally changes Paul's life. This wasn't on Paul's agenda for the day. This wasn't Paul's idea. He had a whole other road mapped out for himself. In one moment, God changes everything. Now notice here, he doesn't say, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ because of how awesome I am. Or because of some academic hoops that I've jumped through to qualify me. I didn't graduate from Jerusalem Seminary, Magnum. You know, I'm this qualified man to do this job. He says, I'm an apostle by divine appointment. Because God called me to do it. God chose me and he sent me. Boom. End of discussion. So the first reason is to silence the haters. He says, if you don't, if you don't think... That I'm, that I'm an, if you think I'm just some random apostle, he says, you need to take that up with God, because he's the one that sent me. Secondly, it's to keep him pressing on. He starts this way to keep him pressing on. Paul never wavered in his sense of duty. Imagine all the things that we said that he faced. Floggings and beatings and shipwrecks and persecutions. He never wavered. Why? Because he believed in his God, and he believed when what his God had called him to be. I love the account that he gives of his own conversion. He's, um, it happens in Acts chapter 9, but I actually like better. In Acts chapter 26, he's standing on trial before King Agrippa. And, and he speaks to him, 
recounts where he's coming from and why he does what he does. He says this. He says, About noon, O king, I was on a road. Uh, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I had to look up what that means. It's like if someone's prodding you and you're resisting, resisting that prodding. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them. And then he says, this is what I've called you to do. And this is quite a calling. He says, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He says, that's what you're going to life doing, Paul. And then I love the way that Paul wraps this up. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. You catch that? He says, God found me. He chose me. He called me to this thing. Who am I to disobey? Who am I to go against these orders? Paul pressed on because when you have that kind of an encounter with God, it changes you. It transforms you. And you know, most, the most important thing about us is what we think of God, what we think about God. And in light of that, what he thinks about us, who he says that we are, and who he's called us to be. And God has a calling in our life, just like this. Although I, I know this is a crank call, because God would never call me at that time of day. Um, he knows me. He knows every hair on my head and the hours that I sleep. What has God called you to be? What is God calling you to be? Sometimes it's specific. There was a time in my life six or seven years of my life in my 20s that I would have, it's weird to be able to say in my 20s, um, where he was to the foreign mission field. And I know I would have been violating my conscience. I would have been running like Jonah had I not gone. But then his direction changed. And he says, I have you here in this community right now. We're going to talk about more of that uh, next week. And maybe, maybe like Saul, maybe you thought you were doing the right Right? Maybe you thought you were following God's plan for your life, but really you were hurting people. And then God knocks you down on your keister and he says, follow me. Turn your life around and follow me. And you may not know, I, I think we can get, over, we can get too, uh, too caught up with the exact calling in our lives. He may not be directing you into something very specific at the moment, but we do know this. All of us are loved by God. Do we, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that there is a God who is for us, who's in our corner, who loves us? We have to And that he loved us to send this son to die in our place so that we could be with him. And we are all called, all believers are called to love the family of God and to point people to Jesus. If you don't feel a specific calling in your life, uh, I need to go to this country, or I need to live in this town, I need to take this job, I need to marry that person, what we do know is what we know in the word of what he's called us to do, and that's to love people and to point them to Jesus. 
So in the moments in our life when we feel like quitting, when we feel like throwing in the towel, he reminds us of his love and the calling to share that love with others. And may we, like Paul, say, I was not disobedient to that vision. So this is Paul, called by the will of God to be the minister of the gospel of grace. And he says, it's not just me, this is also coming from Timothy, our brother. And I love this. Timothy, there is perhaps no one dearer to Paul than Timothy. In the 13 epistles that Paul wrote, 10 of them mention Timothy in the letter. In fact, six of them introduce him in the greeting. He's part of the team that's written this letter, and two of them are written to Timothy. First and second, Timothy, right? Pretty straightforward. Um, Timothy is, is a man he met as a young man in Look at that in Acts chapter 16. Timothy was this, was this godly young man, this disciplined, dedicated young man. His mom was a believer. His grandma was a believer. So he comes from good stock. He, uh, he is, has Jewish and Gentile background, which makes him very versatile as a minister of the gospel. And talk to, to both kinds of people. And so Paul here, he finds this young man that he can pour his life into that he can mentor, that he can disciple, and eventually partner with in the gospel, and and then one day he hands the ministry over. It's the process of discipleship. And and this this discipleship, watching someone, then partnering with them, and then them watching you as as, as you that's that's so central to the Christian life. Finding someone older than you, perhaps in, in real years or spiritually, to look, after, to look at, to, to follow, to imitate them as they imitate Christ, and then to find someone younger than you in the faith, to, to, for them to be watching you and following you. You know, for me, this, is, this has happened in, in many ways. I've had, I've had many mentors along the path. Um, you know, most recently, God has been so good to me to bring Pastor Larry into my life. And, you know, um, we laugh a lot, we talk about sports a lot. But on the other hand, I've told Larry things that I've never told anybody else. And been able to learn from his years of experience, his years and years and years <laughs> of experience. And then once a week I get together with his grandson. And I hope to be able to share a fraction with him. And to have someone to mentor, it doesn't mean you have to be perfect. In fact, realizing you're not perfect is the first step in being qualified to mentor somebody. But are you a part of this discipleship thing that God's called? Go into all the world and do what? Make disciples. Share life with people. So we have Paul, we have Timothy. Who they write to? Who's this audience? He says, I'm writing to the church of God in Corinth. Now, it's important to understand a little bit about uh, what Corinth is, where it is, and what kind of people we're dealing with here. So if you look at the church of Corinth, it's a little faded, sorry about that. Um, this, is, this is the Mediterranean Sea, and you see Greece up here. Now, there's mainland Greece, and then there's the, the Peloponnese Peninsula. Say that five times fast. On that little, uh, that little yellow square where it says Corinth Canal, that's where the city of Corinth is located. It sits right on this isthmus, that's a hard one to say too, uh, between the mainland and this peninsula. This isthmus is four miles long, and what is so important about it is, again, it's kind of hard to see, but there's this, in, in order to avoid this stretch of land, you would have to take a 250-mile boat trip around this peninsula. Not just any boat trip, 
There's a, sa uh, a sailor's saying about this trip that no one sails around the peninsula without writing his will. This is a dangerous, a perilous adventure. This is not some, you know, Kenai Fjords pleasure cruise. This is an arduous task. And so, of course, it was a lot easier just to walk across four stretches, four miles of land, which made Corinth a place with a ton of foot traffic. People from all over the world would come through Corinth. It was a prosperous trade town. It's often compared to, like, kind of San Francisco, San Francisco during the uh, gold rush. It was this boom town, and it made it a very strategic place for Paul to plant a church. You have people from all over the world coming to trade town. What a better place to lay the seeds of the gospel. And this is a place that during Paul's time was a population that had erupted to 500,000 people, half a million people. But with that, with the people, comes the sin. And the sin of Corinth is, is wide, and it's, it's well known. Corinthians, uh, the Corinthians, in particular, were known for their sexual promiscuity. In fact, this coin to Corinthianize. And to Corinthianize meant, basically, to go to bed with a prostitute. It was synonymous. This is the kind of reputation these people had. In fact, if you referenced a Corinthian girl, that meant a, uh, a lady, if you will. This picture that you see here, this is an acropolis, which means a city up on a hill. And the city on a hill, at the top of it, it had, this is the ruins, a, a, a contemporary picture, but this is the, the Temple of Aphrodite. And uh, this was a temple where there was over a thousand prostitutes that lived in this temple. And on a nightly basis, they would descend upon the city to apply their trade in this gross mix of fornication. And so the city becomes known for its adultery, for its homosexuality, for its stealing, for its immorality, for its drunkenness. And it's in this city, in Acts chapter 18, that we see Paul walking into with the gospel. He plants a church, and in the writing of 2 Corinthians, they're celebrating their sixth birthday. Imagine this for a second. Imagine, why is it be like walking into modern-day Las Vegas, Right? Paul walking around, hey, anybody want to start a Bible study? You know? Does anybody want to get baptized? I mean, think about what Paul is facing to walk into this kind of city with that kind of message. No wonder he was facing persecution. And so we see that out of this, though, the church of Corinth is born. And I encourage you, we don't have time this morning, but looking at Acts chapter 18, it's a beautiful chapter where it talks about the, the start of the church and the amazing things that God does to get it underway. But what I want to take us through very briefly is to understand a lot of the things in the letter, because it is so personal, we need to know a little bit of how Paul got to where he is with the people. And like we said, it's a complicated relationship. So it starts out on Paul's first visit, Acts 18. He's on his second missionary journey. Remember, Paul takes three trips to take the gospel to the Gentile people. The gospel's never growing. It starts growing. So on Paul's second trip, he goes to Corinth and he plants this church. Now, as you could imagine, he plants a church, uh, 51 AD, church is born, and Paul and Timothy, they stay there for a year and a half to really get this thing off the ground. Well, as you can imagine, in the midst of this wicked metropolis, it doesn't take long for the church to become infected with some of these sins and the roof caves in. Paul hears about this. There's some gross sexual immorality that's going on inside the church, and so he writes this first letter addressing this immorality. Now, this is a letter we don't actually have. Paul references it in 1 Corinthians. He says, 1 Corinthians 
9, he says, I wrote to you concerning this immorality. This is a, a letter that he wrote to him that we don't have. And then, and then a little while later, he writes a second letter, which is our 1 Corinthians. So as much as we it's at least the second letter he's written to the church, it's the first one we have in our Bibles, so that's why we call it 1 Corinthians. This letter addresses the division that's going on in the church. They, some people say, well, I'm with Paul, and I'm with Apollos, but I'm of Jesus. Don't we see that today in the church? Paul addresses that. He addresses the immorality, the deep sins going on in the church. And in general, the, well, the letter is pretty well received. Most people accept it. We see a lot of changes. But then another complicating factor comes in. The Jewish leaders come into the church. They don't like Paul's message. They're always anti-Paul. And so they come in to try to prey on this young, four-year-old church and to tell them the good news. No. To tell them to turn away from the good news, sorry. And so they try to undermine Paul, they try to undermine his authority, and they try to undermine the gospel. And what, they, what the Jewish leaders try to tell the people is, you must obey the Old Testament Jewish leaders preach. Well, Paul is, is preaching, sorry, my little nephew is distracting me. What's wrong, buddy? Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He hasn't, he hasn't. He's not a Christian yet. Oh, well. Um, <laughs> so Paul's message is being undermined by these Jewish, these Jewish, these false teachers. So he says, it's time for me to go back. So in second, uh, his, he pays a second visit. We see this mentioned in second. He comes to them to address these issues with the false teachers. And what he comes away with is extreme discouragement. The people are not turning. These, the talons are very deep from these false teachers, and the sin continues to grow. Out of this frustration and discouragement, he actually writes them a third letter. It's called the Severe Letter. He writes it in the summer of 54 AD, and this letter, he is harsh. He rips into them. Unfortunately, because I think this would be really interesting, we, have also, we also don't have this letter. So the first letter he wrote and the third letter he wrote, we don't have them today. He writes them this, this very harsh letter. He actually sends Titus, another co-worker, to them to bring this severe letter. When Titus returns to Paul, there's mixed news. In a lot of ways, they've heard this letter. A lot of them have repented of the church, some of the people involved in these deep sins. But these false teachers still have a very strong stranglehold on the church. And it's out of these strong, very mixed emotions that Paul writes his fourth letter to the Corinthians, which is our 2 Corinthians, written about six years into their church history. So what does Paul have to say to these people? Why does he write his fourth letter? As we saw, the theme of this letter is the autobiography of a bleeding heart. Paul loves this church. For years he's labored and hurt with this church and cried with this church and yelled at this church and rejoiced with this church. He wants to see this church grow, and so he writes this letter where he just pours himself out in explanation to this church. In fact, David Lowry, he said this, he said, No letter of Paul's is more personal and intimate in nature than 2 Corinthians. In it he bared his soul and professed his abiding love for the Corinthians, despite the apparent fickleness of their affection for him. This is not God's heart toward us and our fickleness toward our Father. Paul bleeds in the same way. So he writes this church, just a, a brief outline of where we're going to go. I think it's always helpful to know 
where we're trying to go as we go along the way. Three things Warren Wearsby lays out as, as an outline for this book. In chapters 1 through 7, Paul explains his ministry. He explains to them, he reminds them what he's all about, specifically in the ways that it affects the Corinthian church, his relationship with them, and, in general, the marks of a servant of God. And there's some beautiful truths that we're going to see in these first seven chapters as he lays out the paradoxes of being a minister of the gospel, that it's, that it's, it's living out of strength, out of foolishness. And he tells this all to the people in the first seven chapters. And then in 8 and 9, Paul encourages their generosity. There's a famine going on in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of people who are suffering from the, the, um, the outworkings of this famine who are very poor. And so a lot of the churches, they gather up these gifts to give to the church at Jerusalem. Initially, the believers in Corinth were excited about this. They were, gonna, they were eager to participate in this, but they've failed to carry through commitment. And so Paul speaks to them on giving, and it's, it's, a, it's an amazing passage on giving, and we're expecting tithes to go up in our church during that time, so dig deep into your pockets, faithful sheep. Um, that's a joke. Um, Paul enforces his authority at the end, chapters 10 through 13. Remember, there's these Jewish leaders who are trying to undermine his authority, so he reassures them, defends his God-ordained apostleship, where this comes from. Not, he's not trying to save his own skin. He's not trying to, to, to save his own reputation. But they need to know that the message is coming from God. And that he's coming from God. That this is the truth that they're being called to believe. And he's there to denounce those false teachers who oppose him and who oppose Christ. In the face of this discouragement, what keeps Paul going? Through all of the floggings and the beatings without sleep, and the days shipwrecked to sea, and all of the hurt incurred by this church, the backstabbings, the way that they, this, this man has poured out his life to them, and they continue to sell themselves out to the newest message. What keeps Paul going? What keeps him in that faithful place of ministry and love for those people? This book is going to answer that question. What keeps you going this morning? What keeps us going when we face hard things? We just went through the book of 1 Peter, which talked about persecution, talked about suffering. We said that Paul, Paul says if anybody wants to live a godly life, if you want to follow Jesus, you're going to face persecution. You're going to face suffering. You're going to face dis discouragement. So the question is, what keeps us going through that? We're not going to be led around that. Maybe for you this morning... What gets you started? Maybe you've never started on that journey. What gets us started? With this last verse, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a typical customary opening at the time, but it is no cliche coming from Paul. He says, Grace and peace to you. And it comes from our Father and from the Son that he sent. I'm not going to take for granted this morning that just in one of these chairs under a roof that we've labeled a church that you know him, that you've given your life, that you believe him. Where are you at this morning? This grace that he talks about can be, what is grace? Grace is unmerited favor. It means goodness from God that we don't deserve. What do we deserve? Because of who we are and the way we've rebelled against our God, the only thing we deserve is eternal separation from him. 
But out of his love, out of his undeserved favor, he sent his son down to this earth to live this perfect life that you and I have fallen so short from living. And he died on that cross punishment that we should have received. We deserved it, not him. But he took our place on that cross, and through that, he gave us forgiveness of sins. He paid the price that we could never pay. And through Jesus, we can have a the outpouring of grace, the outcome of grace is peace. And if you don't know peace in your life, it's because you don't know Jesus. He is the one that gives us peace in our hearts, peace with God and peace with others. And if that's something this morning, man, I know oftentimes in my life, I don't come, I don't do something unless someone specifically asks me to do it. I'm not going to bring a bag of candy for the Halloween party unless Bridget grabs me by the collar and says, bring some candy. She's scary. Sometimes we don't come until someone asks us. And so I ask you this morning, will you come? Will you come? Will you give your heart to Jesus? Will you lay your sins down on the cross and say, I fall? I've fallen short, but you've given me everything. Will you believe him this morning? Will you accept his grace and his peace? Let's pray. Father, We come to you this morning from all different places. Some of us have never come to you. Some of us have come from you and then walked away. Some of us get weary of following you from day to day and the the things that come into our way, the the sufferings and persecution and hardships that that bring. Sometimes they're, they're from other people. Sometimes they're the tiredness of ministry. Sometimes they're just things that we, quite frankly, Lord, don't know where they come from and why you've allowed us to go through them. But God, we must believe what your word says, that you are a good God who loves us whose ways are higher than our ways, that that we will never, probably never, be able to answer some of the questions that we have in our life. But all of our questions have found their answer in your Son. Father, may we believe in the amazing grace that you've given us. The question is not what we don't deserve. Why Why did you put us through this? We don't deserve it. The question is, why did you save us from the things that we deserve? Father, I pray that in this room we would be a people who believe that you love us and who follow where you've led us. May we be engaged in discipleship. Father, may we as a a body find people to disciple and be discipled by. Father, may we, like Paul, have a bleeding heart for your church, for the people in this church, that we'd walk through life together, that we would share life even when it's messy. And that we would constantly be asking you for opportunity to share with those in our community who don't know you, who don't know your grace, who have not experienced your peace. May we, like Paul, take this task seriously. May we not be disobedient to the division that you've given us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.